the theme for the talk this evening is start where you are. And I want to talk about this because usually on the first days of our retreat, we're usually confronted with our ideas about meditation. When we first come to a retreat, it's one of the first things that shows up for us. If we're relatively new or very new to the practice, we would have heard all kinds of things about the meditation and uh, what to expect and what might happen. Or we may have the worst thing is that we usually read all kinds of things about it. And we can easily get thoroughly confused and have a lot of distorted ideas because we haven't had the experiences directly. But rather, this is, it all remains somewhat intellectual at this point. Or I- even if we're re- relatively old uh, students to the practice, we can easily come with lots of our memories of the last retreats and experience memories of certain experiences that we've had that we would like to repeat, we'd like to have come again. And we bring those memories along with our interpretations of what we've read and what we've heard. And so through this, we accumulate a lot of ideas which are stored in our memory, in our mind through the memory, about how we'd like our experience to be. The difficulty with this is that the way we would like our experience to be often conflicts with the way that our experience actually is. We'd like our experience to be very easy, very calm, and have uh, a clear mind, a mind that's free of thought, and lots of uh, pleasant feelings running through the body, and uh, uh, no pain in the body, and be able to keep the mind very focused and concentrated at will you know, at our command. And yet, particularly at the beginning of a retreat, we find that our experience is often one of being very sleepy and dull, a lot of restless uh, energy that can run through, the mind very agitated, very difficult to focus the attention or concentrate the attention on the breath as, as we would like. We may actually feel a lot of pain in our body, and either through, uh, through not being very familiar with the sitting or through having to sit for long periods of time or maybe accumulated tensions that we've brought with us from the way that we are living our life. For most of us, and I would think that probably most people here, this is true for how first day of a, a retreat often goes, this is the present reality. We might say this is the fact, the fact of the matter. But it usually conflicts with our running commentary about how our meditation should be. It should be going, or how it at least could be going, you know, if, if this would happen or that would happen or I did it right or whatever. Or depending how attached we are to our ideas about our meditation, we might, might be how our meditation must be going, <laughs> the, the strong demand of what we would like to have happen. 
And this usually runs through the mind rather unconsciously. We don't really see what's going on in the mind around this. We don't see what we're saying to ourselves or how we're holding these ideas in the mind. But rather, what we probably do experience is some energetic tension in the body that comes through having this judgment about ourselves and our meditation that somehow it isn't okay and it needs to be different, either being very a mild expectation or a very strong expectation. And we'll feel that inner agitation or tension uh, within ourselves uh, that comes about through the assumptions that we're holding, the judgment or the assumptions that we aren't doing what we should be doing. The mind isn't attending to things the way it should be. <laughs> My body isn't responding the way I want it to be. Um, I just can't do things the way I think I should be doing, or however that manifests through the day. We have a thought or an image, a picture, that arises in the mind, and we think it's valid. You know, it's so interesting how this happens. And I think that no matter how uh, experienced we are, and I see this in my own mind as well, how easily I think these images are valid. Yes, it's true. Of course I should be able to do it differently, or there should be some other way of this manifesting. And then through that thought or that picture that's arising in the mind, I may or you may have a judgment a judgment that makes ourselves wrong or makes uh, what's happening wrong in some way. And then we actually believe we have a valid reason to judge ourselves. We have a valid reason to get down on ourselves for the way that our meditation is going. That actually, if I could just figure out some way for this to be different, then things really would be much better and I wouldn't be having this problem. And because one is so identified with the belief, with the judgment, with the picture, that is completely missed in consciousness. That, that judgment itself is not seen, and one is left with the feeling of agitation or tension, or maybe even dissatisfaction, unhappiness, discontentment about the way things are going. Or, or it might just be, uh, one meditation or a few meditations in the day where this pattern may arise. It may be that actually nothing is wrong whatsoever. And I'm going to say more about this as I go on. <laughs> this is just a prelude that actually maybe nothing is wrong <laughs> whatsoever. But perhaps we're just viewing our practice from a limited idea. Sometimes, if we're lucky, our experience that we're having does not conflict with our picture or an image, but actually everything's going as we like. You know, it feels good. You know, I like what's happening in my body. I like that my mind is more quiet. I like that I'm able to focus more on the breath. I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I'm actually content to be here. 
And then we may have some thoughts going through the mind of, well, now I'm doing it right. I better pay attention. Is this a reason for you? I better pay attention to what's happening so that in case I lose it, I can repeat it next time. I better know what I'm doing now so that I can get this experience back when it changes. No. We, in the same way that when we're having an experience that we don't like and we judge it, even when we're lucky and we're having a positive or a, a good experience, what we call a good experience, we have, it, it matches our picture or it matches our image and in that we still think that our image is valid. And when we think that our image is valid, now I'm doing it right, we make ourselves right and then we believe that we have a valid reason for feeling good and we miss the identification and the clinging to that image of ourselves as doing something right or doing something good. And if there is clinging and identification to an image, the way that we'll actually know that is when it inevitably changes, as all experience does, then we fall into disappointment and sometimes despair. Oh, what happened? I was doing so well. Now I'm not doing so well, and I don't understand what happened. And all this is happening within the view of the ego or the sense of self, the I, all from a limited idea, a limited view of what should be happening. So whether it's going well, whether it's not going well, there may be the, the subtle, or sometimes not so subtle, identification, which means that there's a view from sense of self in this. Usually when we like what's happening, we hold on, we get attached to our experience. And when we don't like what's going on, we want it to be different. And we can so easily turn that experience against ourselves and make ourselves wrong. Or we may even turn that against somebody else. We may turn it outwardly, that, that, that judgment or that aversion, turn it outwardly towards another person, towards the place, the, the, the center that we're at. Well, you know, if it was warmer or if the food was better or they wouldn't run out of soup or if, uh, you know, the sun was shining, something else, if it only could be different out there, then we would, then we would be happy, we'd be content. Or could be that projection or that judgment can be turned towards the teacher or, or anywhere whatsoever when we, when we don't when we don't see what's really going on. We can get caught in the story and not question what's going on, not question our view that we're holding this from. It's impossible to have an image of our practice and try to become that image. It's impossible for it to happen this way. Because this way we're going through the mind, we're going through our mind, we're going through our memory, we're actually going through the past. You know, the past experiences, what's happened before, our collected ideas that we're dragging into the present. And actually we're not very present at all. 
there's out front on the in the in the front garden there as you know there are three magnificent trees and I think they're all oak trees and this 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 an image that came to me would is very much like if um, one of the oak trees maybe the one in the back that the smaller of the giant oak trees was complaining and saying, well, if I only could be the kind of oak tree that's in front, you know, if only I had that, those kind of leaves and that kind of bark and um, that kind of soil around me, then I'd be okay, you know. It's like somehow missing our own magnificence, you know, thinking that, that somehow I need to have something that I don't have to be magnificent, to be complete. It's not wrong to have these spiritual images or these spiritual ideas, and in some ways I think it's a necessary stage on the path. However, it easily becomes a trap if it's not, if these images aren't seen clearly. We do um, have images that arise within ourselves out of our own longing for, for uh, deep happiness, for freedom, for liberation. And we will project or, or see images of people or things or places that do evoke that deep longing within ourselves. And these can uh, serve as, as, as images for aspirations for us to move into a, our, our full potential of our being. However, we do have to, at some point, see that it's still an image. It's still an image that's projected outside of ourselves. And until we can really let go, we will be moving away from ourselves to that image rather than allowing something to grow much more naturally and organically within our own being. We can often have images of wanting certain specialized states in our meditation, and it's not unusual at all. And many forms of meditation do um, encourage or do reinforce these specialized states, these uh, high, highly refined states of concentration in our, in our meditation. And when we are on long retreats or we're doing certain practices, the mind can become very concentrated, very focused. And uh, there can be a, uh, many wonderful, uh, blissful feelings that can arise when the mind is so calm and focused. And in this way, these states of mind do temporarily cut through the, uh, the difficult movement and, uh, and feeling life that we experience when we're in the world and when our daily experiences. But these are, and we do feel relief and a sense of bliss when we have these experiences. However, when we leave the conditions that are supportive to these experiences, then the state of mind changes and the world comes back and we're back in the world where we are impacted by life. And world means the world of birth, aging, sickness, and death. You know, that's the world in the Buddhist 
cosmology, the world, the samsaric world of birth, aging, sickness, and death, where we have economic challenges, we have family pressures, relationships, we are, we are uh, uh, experiencing the strength of our own past conditioning, and a lot of pain arises for us. So when we talk about equanimity or non-attachment or unconditional acceptance, the qualities that are nurtured in meditation, we need to really look where we are right now. Because what happens when the fear arises, the jealousy arises, the rage, the, the, the pain, the emotional pain, because if we're holding on to the idea of what we, where we think we should be in our practice, that I should be able to be equanimous, I should be able to be unconditionally accepting of what's happening right now, we are going to experience more pain. And the, and the prasana or the insight practices encourage us again and again to begin where we are, to be where we are, to feel where we are in what's happening within ourselves. And the more that we can come into that place, we dissolve that split or that, that separation more and more within our own minds and arrive in the present moment, arrive where we are. There was a man in, in a, a one of the groups on one retreat who ha- asked the question, he said, If I'm centered, I won't have such strong reactions. I won't have all this fear and rage. What can I do so this won't happen? You know, it's like the wrong question. What can I do so this won't happen? It's like this is happening. Now what do you do because it is happening? Not what you do so that it won't happen. It's, It's just, it's the mind moving into a place where it's not helpful. Or one woman in a group who uh, was talking about the resistance she was having to the walking meditation, and she asked a similar question. She said, what can I do so I won't be so resistant to the walking meditation? But the fact is, she is resistant to the walking meditation. So what needs to be looked at in the here and now reality is the resistance. What is that? How do I be with that? How do I know that? The unique thing about the Buddhist teachings and the meditation practice that we're doing here is that nothing needs to be different. And for me, in the years that I've been involved with this practice, that has been one of the most powerful statements that as the the days and the weeks and the months and the years go by, it has more and more profound meaning to me that nothing needs to be different, that it really is okay the way it is right now. We only want things to be different because we don't like who we are or there is some sense that we are bad or we're wrong or incomplete in some way our mind states, our moods, our reactions, our bodies, our personalities. Why else would things need to be different? If things were really understood to be okay the way they are. I remember my very first weekend retreat that I did 
um, back in California in the, in the late 70s, I could only begin with a weekend retreat because the week retreat seemed too daunting at the time. And I was um, sitting with a small group of people in, in California when the early days when retreats were just starting out there, actually. It was only the mid-70s, the late 70s, where this practice really started coming to the West. Um, and I really was having a very difficult time. I had done an introductory uh, class, of, a six-week beginner's uh, introductory class, and wanted to do my first retreat. And I um, thought it was the hardest thing I ever did in my whole life. You know, and by the, um, this was just a weekend, by the uh, middle of the, of, the se- of the first day, which would have been the Saturday, I just didn't think I could do it anymore. It was just too much, too hard, too painful, and I had so much comparing going on that I was, I just thought that being there was just adding on so much more suffering to myself, I didn't even know why I was doing it. There was one man who obviously had done a lot of, of meditation before, even though it was still a time when it was fairly new in the country. And we, we had a, it was at somebody's house and there was a, a, a deck, a California kind of deck in the back of the house. And we did our walking meditation there. And this man was so steady. He just walk and walk. I mean, just, it just was re- like a, so, uh, with so much rhythm and so much strength, just back and forth and back and forth. And even to this day, I remember the power of that impact on me, of that man's walking meditation, and how consistent and how strong and how persevering he was, how disciplined he was in his practice. And that that's what helped me stay there a little bit longer because I could see something in this man and the way that he was doing his walking meditation that I wanted. And yet I did get very caught up in the comparing and uh, judging myself and making myself wrong and, you know, this practice probably wasn't my practice. It was much, much too hard for me. And my teacher, who was also my friend, uh, James Barras, uh, who's now he's the co-founder of the Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California, um, he uh, really wanted me to have a good retreat. You know, it was really important to him that I had good experiences. And so he was really quite concerned about my despair and the fact that I was ready to throw the whole thing in. And, but he told me, he said, why don't you just go out for a walk? You just go out for a walk. Just, just drop the practice for a little bit. Just go out for a walk and look at the trees and the birds and, you know, look at the flowers and relax. <laughs> and it was a wonderful, wonderful piece of advice because it really, by, by doing that, it really did allow me to continue, the, to continue and finish the weekend. But without that, I wouldn't have, I'm not sure <laughs> where I would have been today. But sometimes the, the tension can build up to such a degree that it becomes unbearable. And I know from my own experience now, when I, when I, when I reflect back now, what I can see where that tension arose from. You know, that it wasn't okay that I was having such a difficult time. And the pressure that I would put on myself because I wanted to be a good yogi, I wanted to be able to keep my mind quiet, I wanted to be able to 
uh, be able to focus on the breath. I wanted to understand what this meditation, these teachings were about. But the critical mind was so severe that it just put so much more pressure, so much more tension on me that I became so brittle, so rigid, that I I felt like I was just going to break in half. And so sometimes when that happens, we just need to move out of the whole experience and just relax. It's like, lighten up, you know. <laughs> Take it easy. Because in that, in that particular time period, we won't be able to see what we're doing. We won't be able to see what we're caught up in. And so sometimes it even just takes some reflection or some guidance from the outside to say, it's okay, you know, it's okay. Just take a break, cool out. You know, because it's just the, the patterns, the conditioning can just be so strong that we get so caught up in it. I think the practice really does begin with acceptance. You know, we hear about acceptance, and it really is such a crucial factor in the meditation, the practice of acceptance. And it's not a passive acceptance. It's not um, where we say, okay, well, you know, nothing is going to change anyhow, so I may as well accept it. You know, it's not a, a resignation of our experience. But a true acceptance has a vitality in it. We accept what's, hap- we accept what's happening because it's happening. No. We accept it because it's happening. And in that, it means that we really meet our experience as it is. That's why it has a vitality because we're there with it. We haven't kind of um, just withdrawn in some way or resigned in some way or uh, given up in some way. But we meet our experience when we accept it. But we can talk about accepting, and it's a really good idea, but how do we actually know whether we're accepting our experience or not. What's the sign, what's the signal for acceptance in our practice? From my experience, I think that a good sign for whether I'm accepting or not has to do with whether I am suffering or not. Because suffering, in the Buddhist concept of suffering, the word dukkha in Pali, dukkha, Dukkha also means it's unsatisfactory. You know, that tension that comes when something's not satisfactory. I mean, there can be all uh, different degrees of suffering. But suffering arises with attachment. Suffering arises when I'm holding on. When I want things to be different. Suffering arises when I'm pulled out of my experience, of my present experience, because I'm wanting something or not wanting something. And it's that, it's, it's, it's the pulling, out, being pulled out of the present moment, being pulled out of our experience, where we feel the tension of that and we feel the suffering. This attachment arises out of some idea that I'll be better off if I have that thing, that thing that I'm being pulled out towards, or if I don't have that thing, which I don't like and I don't want. Attachment can move in either direction, and yet it implies some kind of incompleteness, 
some kind of lack of acceptance of the way things are. And when I have the view or have the assumption of incompleteness, I will feel the dukkha of that. I will feel the suffering of that. And there's different degrees, as I said. There can be a lot of suffering. There can be medium suffering, mild suffering, or no suffering in our experience. But what that means, if there's a lot of suffering, it means there's a lot of attachment. If there's a medium medium amount of suffering, it means there's a medium amount of attachment. There's a little bit of suffering, a little bit of attachment. If there's no suffering, there's no attachment. It seems that we can sometimes ask ourselves when we experience the inner tension or the dissatisfaction, the dukkha. I love the word dukkha. Dukkha, you know, it's just dukkha. (laughs) When we're experiencing that, we can actually turn the question back to ourselves and say, what am I holding on to? What am I holding on to right now? What am I attached to right now? And it can be a very helpful question when we're on retreat, we're going along and we have the ups and the downs and the the different degrees of experience through the day, the many, many changes, the myriad nature of our experiences. And when things get difficult, or things even get a little bit difficult, we can say, "What, what am I holding on to now? What is it that I want to be different? What am I not accepting in my experience right now? What am I not able to open to right now? This practice of not needing things to be different is the practice of equanimity. And equanimity is one of the, one of the spiritual powers that we develop in our meditation. It's actually a spiritual power as the mind becomes more and more steady and isn't moving out of itself to want things to be different. Equanimity means that I am accepting what comes and I let go of what leaves. I accept what comes and I let it go when it leaves because things are appearing and disappearing, coming and going every moment of our experience. When they come, okay. When they leave, okay. Equanimity is an unconditional allowing of our conditions that come and go. Yet at the same time, it's a full engagement with the conditions of life, with a balance of mind and with composure. But as soon as we start to talk about this, you know, we see, I mean, I'm wondering if you're noticing how easily that can become another spiritual ideal or another spiritual image. It's like, oh, that'll be nice, you know. That'll be nice when I get that. be nice when my mind starts being more balanced and composed, <laughs> you know. And, and so easily we can start to move out again, you know, not to not to be able to think of that or, or have that, that image without some uh, judgment of ourselves or where we are. But can we allow that to arise from a place of composure? No. From a place of caring and respect for ourselves. We're not undermining ourselves or condemning ourselves. 
because when we speak about these um, goals of practice, we're talking about our practice, but not where we can expect ourselves to be right now. But it doesn't mean that we, at every minute and every stage of the practice, we can apply or we can practice the uh, teachings of, 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 of the meditation and, and the Buddhist teachings. Equanimity is an important quality for us to practice, but it is difficult to understand. It's, it's easy to get confused about what equanimity is. It's difficult because we're talking about a way of being which is detached from our experience, but yet it's connected to experience at the same time. That's why it's so confusing. (laughs) Detachment is a word that's commonly misunderstood in the Buddhist teachings, because it's a word that's actually used a lot, you know, and I'm not sure that when it's used often that it's really understood what is what the true meaning is there in buddhism when we speak of detachment the kind of equanimous detachment it's what uh, joseph goldstein one of my teachers calls the the passion in dispassion now another contradiction, the passion in dispassion. And it doesn't mean that there isn't an emotional response to what's happening in the moment, but it means that we're not as identified with what's happening in any given time. We're not as caught up in such a strong sense of this is happening to me or this is mine, or this is my experience. It's not so much about me, or my story, or our, uh, my emotions, or my body, but it's seen in a much more spacious awareness. When we talk about deta- detached equanimity, um, it is about not being attached. And when we're talking about not being attached, we are talking about a characteristic of the free mind, of the enlightened mind. A mind where there is not a reaction, attachment or aversion to things that are happening. So if we put it in the perspective of of a characteristic of an enlightened mind, I'm hoping that you aren't using it too much as a way to evaluate yourself where you are right now. I mean, we all have a lot of work to do. But in understanding this detached equanimity, what this usually gets disguised as, and the reason that it's difficult to know it, is because it gets disguised as indifference, as an experience or a mind state of indifference where we can be withdrawn or uninvolved, quite cool, in relationship to the experience. And in fact, it's not equanimity at all, but it's just indifference. It's a way of being cut off from experience. When we are caught up in indifference, it's the, really the voice that's saying, well, who cares anyhow? 
You know, who cares? To be spiritual is to be unattached. You know, what does anything matter anyhow? You know, it's all empty and it's all impersonal. And one who doesn't really fully understand this equanimous state, which is not just an intellectual understanding, but a real experience of understanding, we can easily begin to throw around these spiritual concepts. And again, uh, it can be a hindrance, um, something that can interfere with us deepening on the path. Indifference is a temporary sense of peace. It definitely gives us a temporary sense of, 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 uh, of uh, relief from the impact of the condition. But it reinforces the sense of separation. It reinforces being um, in a dualistic state from the withdrawal and the disconnection. It's not wholeness. It's not completeness. It's not connection. It's not equanimity. Equanimity means that there is not the reaction. Therefore, there's no, there's no, there's not the separation either. True equin- when one has true equanimity, it's not withdrawal, but one is wholeheartedly engaged in life. But in that engagement, not reactive to the conditions and therefore not attached. It's really this equanimity that we can practice that allows us to turn towards the pleasant experiences and not fall into indulgence and attachment to the, to the beautiful things of life. And it's equanimity that allows us to turn towards the painful aspect of life without drowning in despair and aversion. And we have many opportunities as we go through the day to look at ways that we either turn towards that which is beautiful that which we love, you know, walking out in the garden or uh, going to the, um, the highlight of the day, the main meal at, at noon, um, or uh, seeing somebody's beautiful expression on their face or something that awakens, that touches the heart, that awakens the heart, or something that may happen in our meditation, having some very uh, big opening where we feel some uh, uh, release within ourselves. So turning towards the beautiful, but yet not falling into the attachment or the indulgence to it. We can practice that. Just allowing it to appear, to be with it, and then allowing it to change, allowing it to move, to disappear, when it does, as all things do. And turning will have many, many opportunities you've had, and you will have many opportunities to turn toward that which is painful, that which is ugly, not beautiful. You know, whether it's an experience in your own body, whether it's a a sight that you see outside, whether it's a memory that you have or something that you wake up in the night with that's very painful. Can you practice the equanimity, turning towards that, meeting it, being with it, without repelling in uh, sorrow and in despair? but rather to be able to open to the experience with some um, tenderness, with openness, with a a compassionate heart. 
This is our practice that we're doing here as we let go of the uh, strong reaction of attachment and aversion. When we're caught in this grip of an identified mind state, we can just turn our attention to one breath, to one step, to one movement of our arm, to just the simplicity of the moment. If we can bring this kind of powerful, this, this, if we can bring this mindful attention to one moment of our experience, that has the power to free us from what can seem like a prison in our own mind. In that moment, if we're not believing what our mind is saying is true and the only reality, we have the possibility of touching something which is much more true in our experience, that isn't bound up with our mind, with with our memories, with our stories that we carry with us as we move through the day. And when we turn that mindful attention to our experience, it's like turning a light on in a dark cave, a cave that hasn't hasn't had a light turned on for hundreds of thousands of years. But when we turn that light on in that instant with our mindful attention, that that darkness in the cave, in in that cave, is dispelled forevermore just in that instant of turning the light, the light of our awareness. It's a very powerful intention of the mind when we turn towards our experience and meet it just as we are, just as it is, just as we are. So I want to ask you, as, a, as I come to the end of this talk tonight, what pictures are you holding about yourself in this practice? Do you have any images or pictures that you're carrying with you about how you're supposed to be here or what's supposed to happen um, tomorrow or through the week in your meditation? And if you do, I want to invite you to let the pictures dissolve and if you find these pictures forming or these images forming see if you can remember to let them go (coughs) and let yourself be let yourself be as you are and perhaps even be able to come into a moment of appreciation of how you are of who you are in any given moment. (coughs) And to let this happen again and again and again, each time some kind of picture forms, each each time some kind of image of yourself forms, to dissolve back into being, simply being who you are. I'd like to end with this some words from uh, Irma Bombeck, which you may have heard before, a a woman who uh, wrote these words after she found out that she was dying from cancer. And it's called, If I Had My Life to Live Over. 
If I had my life to live over, I would have gone to bed when I was sick instead of believing the earth would go into a holding pattern if I weren't there for a day. I would have invited friends over to dinner even if the carpets were stained or the sofa had been faded. I would have taken the time to listen to my grandfather ramble on about his youth. I would never have insisted that the car windows be rolled up on a summer day because my hair had just been teased and sprayed. I would have sat on the lawn with my children and not worried about grass stains. When my kids kissed me impetuously, I would never have said, later, now go get washed up for dinner. There would have been more I love yous, more I'm sorry, but mostly I would seize every minute and live it. So this is what I'd like to invite you to do to find out how you can seize every moment and live it and what that truly means for you um, here, now, and having this week to where all the conditions are completely here to serve your awakening. Let's sit together just for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.